Welcome to the Leaders in Payments podcast, where we talk to C-level leaders from across the payments landscape. We'll be discussing the products and services that impact the payment space today, as well as trends and predictions for the future of payments. We will also hear stories from our guests about their journeys to the top. Hi, I'm your host, Greg Myers, and this is episode one featuring Brian Gowdy, the CEO of Aurora Payments. Brian grew up in the Boston area and was one of nine kids being raised by a single mom. He spent nearly 20 years at First Data before becoming the CEO of Aurora Payments. He has some great advice for those starting out in the payments industry. So let's get started. Hi, Brian. Thank you for being here and welcome to the Leaders in Payments podcast. Thanks, Greg. Appreciate you having me on today. So let's just dive right in. Tell our audience a little bit about yourself, where you grew up, where you went to school, where you currently live, things like that. Yeah, so I grew up in Massachusetts. I guess if somebody asked me what distinguished my upbringing, I was actually raised in a family of nine kids with a a single mom. So you learn to be uh, independent and scrap. And if you want to eat, you got to go make your dinner. If you want your clothes clean, you got to go clean your clothes when you live in a family of nine with a single mom. But we grew up about an hour and 20 minutes outside of Boston in central Massachusetts. Today, I went to school in University of Richmond down in Virginia for a few years and then finished up UMass Boston. Lived in Charlotte for about 15 years, which I loved. Great place. Actually, four of my five kids were born in Charlotte. Lived in Atlanta for five years. And about 12 months ago, as Aurora opened its headquarters in Tempe, Arizona, I made the move out to the Valley of the Sun and currently reside out here in the Phoenix area, which I love. It's beautiful out here. Great, great. Now let's sort of jump right into Aurora. So tell the audience a little bit about Aurora and what you do there. Yeah, I'm the CEO of the company here. Aurora is, I guess, a bit of an amalgamation of multiple ISOs from over the years that have been acquired into one company. Today, we have approximately 25,000 merchants, the majority of which sit on first data platforms, but many of which sit on TSIS as well a few on Elevon and a few in other scatter platforms. But primarily, it's a first data TSIS full-service provider shop. We have about 80 employees. We have two headquarters. Well, we have one headquarters in Tempe, Arizona, and then we have a uh, location in Ventura County, California as well, in Moorpark, California. You know, basically, we serve SMB merchants, those doing, I would say, anywhere from $50,000 in annual sales up to 70 million in sales, you know, all over. We go to market through our own call centers. We go to market through acquired properties like chosen payments. We'll probably talk about a little bit later on. And a lot of the business that we have is through third-party distribution partners, whether they're sub-ISOs, agents, software companies, associations, and such. We, we added about 800 accounts a month in 2019, and we processed about $8 billion in payments. So you've gone from zero to eight in basically a year. Well, I, re- I wouldn't call it that because, again, we did acquisitions of several companies, a company called BSI, a company called Blue Square, a company called Applied Merchant Systems, and then the most recent transaction in April of 18 was Chosen Payments. So those companies existed. In the case of Applied Merchant Systems, they started in 2005. So the companies existed, and as we acquired them, Aurora came into existence in April of 2018 which was around, that was the time that we raised capital. When I came here at the end of 2017, my charter was to raise capital and we ended up uh, settling on a partnership with Prudential Capital. And as part of that is when we solidified a lot of the acquisitions of of Blue Square 
chosen payments and applied merchant systems. And those companies all sort of sit underneath what is Aurora today. I can't take credit for, for in a year and a half going to 8 billion organically. <laughs> Although I would love to. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And you have a relationship with Goldman Sachs too, right? We do. Goldman Sachs has, has been a lender to the company since 2015. And, you know, they're a great asset. I'm sure there's a lot of folks listening who do business with Goldman, but one of the beauties of Goldman Sachs, specifically for us, it's Taylor Method, which a lot of people know. Taylor's been in the payment side of the business, I believe, since 2003 or maybe 2005. It's been a while that he's been in it. So in addition to being a lender, he's a great voice for us to kind of bounce ideas off because he has great contacts, has worked with large firms like Priority and what was Pivotal Payments at the time, I believe. He, he had done some business with Phil. So people that I respect, John Priori and Phil Fair and others, he's had relationships with those guys. So while he's got confidentiality and all, he has good context for what a, what a great company looks like. What do you think differentiates your company from, I mean, it's obviously highly competitive industry. So what differentiates Aurora? So I look at the industry again, a lot of what I'll say certainly is driven by the fact that I was a senior leader at First Data and was with First Data in different capacities for almost you know 20 years. But if you look at the industry in the last few years, there has been, you know, unprecedented merger acquisition activity, at least as far as I can recall. And, you know, at the top of the food chain, when you look at things like the FIS World Pay transaction, you know, TSIS Global, First Data, Pfizer, these are monstrous transactions that are going on that have huge impacts into the entire payments ecosystem. And I started to see this a little bit, you know, in my last years at First Data, the number of non-processors, true processors that own platforms like those companies. But your traditional super ISOs, like, say, North American Bank Card today or Nuve, those kinds of companies, a lot of them were also bought. So if you think Card Connect or Cayenne, um, Transfirst, et cetera, a lot of these companies have been, have been purchased as well as, at the same time, you have these aggregations of the big-time processing platforms. So what, what does that do? It leaves a situation where, you know, I would say that the boutique shop, that super ISO that sat below the big processors, there's fewer of them today. They've either been acquired or they've merged into other companies. I think that's kind of where Aurora sits today. For a software company or a distribution partner or a technology firm looking to do business with somebody maybe who's not on the size and scale of what these, these aggregated processes are today, there's fewer choices for those folks. And that's where we sit. We, we're a full service provider, as I mentioned, on First Data and Thesis. We have multiple bank sponsorships. We have uh, six bank sponsorships. We are, I would say, relatively agnostic in our view as to you know the, the platform or the bank. We're not highly prescriptive to our partners as to where the business goes. We do, as I mentioned, you know, be, or you brought up the fact that we're backed by Goldman Sachs, and I mentioned that Prudential Capital is our equity partner. So, an access to capital perspective, sitting where we sit. And wanting to do a lot of acquisition and strategic vertical acquisition, we have the, the money to do that and execute on that. And I think that from a strategy perspective, that is what we're looking to do. When I was at FD, if you think about the constituency that a place like First Data or, or a WorldPay has, or any of these big, big processing companies, at First Data, you have firms like Bank of America and Wells Fargo and PNC, and then you have you know, a thousand ISOs and you have your own direct sales force supporting banks and 
and strategic partners. And you have a lot of mouths to feed at a place like that. You have to basically be good at everything. It doesn't necessarily mean you're great. Not to say that companies like First Data or Worldwide aren't great at certain things, but it makes it more difficult because you have your spread so thin. That creates an opportunity to me for a company like Aurora where we could say we're not necessarily trying to be great at everything. We want to be great at certain things. Strategically, that is what we're aiming to do. We are looking to either acquire or build organically through, you know, five to seven vertical markets that we believe are sustainable, you know, low attrition, high growth, maybe complicated to enter into those vertical markets and making our, you know, deploying our capital in those places. The other thing I think, you know, when you talk about differentiating ourselves, I'll use Cayenne. I have, you know, the utmost respect for Henry and what he did from transforming what was Merchant Warehouse up until I believe it was 2011 or 12 into more of a technology firm. He created a genius platform, became Cayenne, and I think he went through a transformation. And others have done that. Henry's not the only one. But I think one of the things that a, a guy like Henry would probably say is that, you know, he wanted to control his own destiny as well as becoming more, if you think about fintech, being more on the tech than the fin side of it, you got to create your own technology. And I wholeheartedly agree with him. I think Card Connect did a good job of this as well. We, we're right now in the process of building out our own payment platform, payment gateway, if you will, and an ERP system that we control. While you know, there are fewer of those big, large Goliath firms at the processor level. I don't really want to interpret what their motivations may or may not be. I think places like Aurora and NAB and, and Nube, you want to control your own destiny. And to do that properly, you have to invest in technology. So for us, it's start, I think the biggest thing we can do here is having our own payment platform. If I'm going to invest in five to seven vertical markets, I want to have the ability from a technology perspective to invest on technology within those markets and on my time frame, and not end up in somebody's development queue because I don't control the gateway. So that's a big thing that we're doing today is trying to control not only the end-to-end client experience as a full service provider where you do your own customer service, you do your own underwriting, fraud management, et cetera, but controlling the technology that propels the small businesses in your, in your portfolio. We'll continue to make that investment. Sure. You read a lot in the payment space about value-added services. A lot of ISOs and technology companies coming along that want to play in this space. And, you know, being just a feet-on-the-street ISO just, you know, doesn't seem to be the future. Sort of what is your view on that and the value-added services? What are you guys doing in that space? First of all, I don't know that I agree with the idea that being a feet-on-the-street ISO is a dead industry. I think people would like to think that. I think that, let's take Clover, for example, which I love Clover. We get that out there right now. I think Clover <laughs> is a product and solution that has you know, continued to evolve over time from when it was introduced back in 2013, 14 timeframe. But if you take solutions like that and other software vendors that are in the marketplace today, we love, you know, in Aurora, we want to get behind vertically aligned software solutions. Right now, there's a gentleman that we're doing business with who's of Vietnamese descent. And for anybody who knows much about the nail salon industry, the nail salon industry is dominated by Vietnamese culture and owners. So they're going to demand, you know, a, a solution at the point of sale that is customized to their, you know, their wants, their needs, and frankly, their culture and their language. So those kinds of things I love. And I think there's going to be a place for that. 
as we continue forward in payments, where things will become more and more specific to industries. As far as where does that leave the local feed on the street ISO, the reality is that particular guy that we're getting behind was an ISO. He saw it from his both from his culture and from like being a distribution ISO and thought that there was an opportunity for him to disrupt the salon industry. With that said, I can tell you just being in Tempe, Arizona here, having gone to lunch the other day at a local pokey restaurant, and we saw that the guy had a square device on the table, and we figured his average ticket's got to be around 20 bucks, and that's a pretty significant hit, the 10 cent increase. And we started a conversation with this guy and let him know that we're local. Local sells. I think if you go into areas around this country, you know, a lot of times people get caught up in New York City, San Francisco, Chicago, Miami. I grant you there is massive opportunity in those hubs, but there's also a lot of rural areas in this country. And I think being a local business owner, whether that's a small business ISO or a small software company, I I wouldn't give up, frankly, you know, and just say, oh, I guess WorldPay and Fiserv are going to get all the business. I think there's a place for people locally with the right solutions, the right technology to continue to win and you know, the beauty of this industry is the recurring revenue aspect of it. So there's a huge opportunity out there in the U.S. today for really all distribution partners. So this next question is sort of a, is a two-part question. What is your sort of view of the payments industry as we look out, let's say two to three years, and then let's look out 10 years. So what is your view of where all this is headed? Well, I'll start with the two to three year piece of it, because that's probably easier to, to try to look at. It's going to be fascinating to see the integrations of these large mergers. And then you've got like a Bank of America kind of going it alone. You know, there are large, large players in the payments industry that are going through some significant transformations. And those will take years, obviously, but that creates opportunities for others. How software companies continue to view payments, there's obviously in the last three to four years, been a huge emphasis on integrated payments. And some of these software companies are probably, they're going to go it alone. They are going it alone or they, they, they will continue to go it alone. And then some will continue to say that's not their payments may not be their, you know, core competency and they want to partner versus going alone. But it'll be interesting to see how much more on the software side folks are going it alone. I think, you know, what I said earlier, and this is an opportunity. Again, if you look at payments and you go back 10 years ago, 10 years ago, I, I think it was around 2010, it may have been 2011, and I think it was the Midwest Acquirers meeting I was at, and the guest speaker was a guy named Jack Dorsey. And I was, I was fascinated by his speech because I think he, it was an interesting thing. He got up there and basically told everybody how the payments industry was antiquated and he was going to disrupt it. it. It lacked transparency and integrity and all these things he said. And <laughs> I, he, I basically was left that he, he was more or less insulting the very audience he was talking about, but he had conviction in what he was saying. and. I think we all know that the amount of money that is poured into the payments industry from 2011 to, say, 2016 and continuing now into 2020 dwarfs what was poured into the payments industry the previous 30 years. Not saying that Square was the the only one, but certainly the, the need for new players and for new processes and payment methods and such are were, were needed then. And they're needed today. I mean, you, you can still walk around Main Street America and see that there's a huge opportunity to continue to grow in the next couple of years. So it will be interesting to see how much more specialization. I think it will just continue to be specialized in the software markets. And I think it will also be, you know, non-traditional payments. You're going to see, you know, continue to see the work of ACH platforms, B2B platforms, 
you know, non again, non-traditional payments, mobile payments. Uh, I don't see any, you know, stop in that growth. I think it'll continue to evolve that way to meet with millennial demand and SMB demand. As far as trying to predict the next 10 years, for me, that's harder to do. I would just go back to past performance is an indicator of future for anybody who's looking at the payments industry today and thinking, oh, wow, it's incredibly evolved. I would go back to the fact that, again, that speech that I heard, again, was 2011, maybe, and it's 2020 today. And if you walk around, I'm not so sure that, that the payment space is even close to being where it could go to. And I think, again, mobility will drive that. The form factor of payment will continue to drive that. And security will drive it. You know, we spend a lot of time in here. If you if you think about security and information security and how easy it is to be hacked, and those are the kinds of things that will continue to drive what the payments industry, how the payments industry looks and what the card brand thinks about, you know, in terms of information security and card brand security. Sure. So let's switch gears a little bit and talk a little bit about you. So tell us your journey, how you got to be the CEO there, sort of what steps through your career and experience did you have in order to get where you are today? Well, I I would say that I'm probably a non-traditional journey the most. I'm not Wharton trained. I didn't come in at a very you know high level. When I went to work for First Data, I was actually living in Boston, and, and this was in 1995, and a buddy of mine worked for Diners Club, and he had heard about an alliance with a company called First Data and a bank called Wachovia Bank down in Charlotte, North Carolina, which, by the way, living in Boston, I didn't know who the heck Wachovia Bank was or who First Data was. I didn't know anything about it, but it was a time in my life that my brother had gone to Davidson College, which is right outside of Charlotte, so I knew a little bit about Charlotte. and. I knew I wanted to go somewhere warm, and I thought it was a, having done some research, it was a great opportunity. So my first job in payments, actually, I was a sales rep out selling you know, merchant accounts to SMB merchants. So that's always been my first love, is, is working with the small or medium-sized business owners and trying to buy and create solutions for their needs. I left First Data in 1999, and at that time, I went and did something that I thought I was crazy to do. But I went to work for what was then the largest ISO in the United States. It was called Card Service International, which has actually spawned a lot of people today who are in high places. If you did a sort of a, a family tree on Card Service International, you'd be shocked at how many people's roots started there. But I thought I was crazy going from a bank environment to going to work for this crazy ISO out of California. And the reality is like a lot of things you do in life, the best decisions are the ones you probably fret the most. I learned so much when you're in a bank environment. It's a bit of an in, in the payment space and probably otherwise. It's a bit of an insular world. You understand that bank's culture and, and how things, processes are done within the bank, but you don't necessarily get a good broad view. When I'm at the card service, my horizons were exposed like immensely compared to when I was, you know, my first few years of first data. Then first data actually acquired card service. So that was my first introduction, I guess, into the acquisition world. I was on the other side of it, having, you know, worked for card service and then having them acquired by first data. And that was 2002. From 2002 until the time I left in 2016, I basically had, you know, all kinds of senior roles that you could have in North America on the acquiring side. I was always on the acquiring side. I ran all the sales teams at First Data, the bank side, the ISO side, the call center, really every every distribution partner that First Data had outside of enterprise. You know, if you think about, you know, entities like McDonald's and Best Buy, there was a different division that ran the big guys. But all the other entities, I got to see it 
you know, from a different purview. And it is different, you know, dealing with third party ISOs or dealing with a, a bank partner or dealing with a Sam's Club. We had, you know, each of those has its own culture and processes and there's, there's good and bad in all of them. So it was a great education to kind of see things from that wide lens at first data over my time there. It's great. Company. Yeah, it definitely sounds like payments is in your DNA. That's for sure. I would say. And, 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 and by the way, I yeah. should mention, Greg, you know, when I left first data and I guess it was 2017, I, I, I forget these days, but what attracted me to the Aurora opportunity was I had a lot of opportunities to go to obviously a lot of different places, but when I looked at Aurora, I was thinking, here's a company that has $15 million or so of EBITDA, but yet to me, it, it feels like a startup business. And to this day, it does. When I, when I came here, I guess it's going on two years. Even to this day, as I walk around the Tempe office, I feel like we're a startup. I think the opportunity that we have is endless. That's the beauty of the payments industry. There's so much opportunity. And to me, versus starting something up from the ground, I like the idea that there was a bit of a jump start here. And we could sort of iterate off of that. And that's really what I'm doing today. So it's been a, been a couple of years here at Aurora. Sure. So what's something that you're passionate about? It could be work-related or not. Well, it was the New England Patriots until a week ago. But no. uh, <laughs> I'll, I'll always be passionate about my, my Boston sports teams. But uh, Tough loss. Tough it loss. It was. There. It was. But all good things must come to an end. we got to let someone else win one here. There you go. I mean, my family... I have five kids that are, you know, one of them just got, he's got his permit. He's going for his license in two months. So he's 16 and my, my youngest is eight years old, soon to be nine. So they're at that age where it's just fascinating to see them grow. Anybody with kids knows the challenges, but the, the rewards are so great. So obviously watching the evolution and the, the transformation of my kids every year is my number one family. Sports is a big thing for me, sports and fitness. Our employees here, I mentioned we have 80 employees, and this probably had a more meaningful member to it when I worked at a place like First Data. But I always think uh, in terms of when I come to work every day, it's our clients, the merchants, our distribution partners that I have responsibility for, and our employees. But our employees, if you do the nuclear family math and everybody had two and a half kids, and you have 100 employees, then you're really responsible for the lives of 250 kids as well. And I always think about it that way, I guess, because I have kids and coming from a big family about how important it is that when you every action you take not only affects those that are in the building every day, but it's those that are part of those households and those families. So I guess that's the number one thing. And, and for me, you know, in my career, what has always been important to me, whether it was technology partner or an ISO who calls me up and says they're getting married or they just bought their first house or they're about to have their first kid. Those things are the things that stick with me. The fact that they would care to even call and tell me that is important to me. It means, you know, that we've done something that had an impact on families' lives. And that, I guess that's the most important thing to me when I come to work today. It's my purpose. If you, have, you know, there's a guy named Steve Barger who worked at First Aid and he's always trying to coach everybody up on you know, your passion is not your purpose. Those are different things. You got to understand the difference in purpose and passion. I guess, you know, my purpose in, in coming to work every day is is to somehow have a better, some kind of an impact on the lives of not only my employees, but their families. Sure. It's great. What would your advice be to someone just starting out in the industry? I mean, it's become sort of a hot, sexy industry to be in. A, a lot of young folks are getting involved. So, you know, what would be a couple pieces of advice you, you'd give them? I would, number one, I would say is don't think you can't do whatever it is in your head that you can do. 
10 years ago. I'll go back to that. This was, I would argue, a lazy industry. It was run by a few large processing companies that were still selling you know, credit card terminals. That wasn't that long ago. And sure, there's been a lot of change, but there's a lot of change to go and there's a lot of great ideas. So I would not sell yourself short. I would also tell younger people that take the risk while your obligations aren't great. I'll go back to that card service analogy. The CEO is a guy named Chuck Bertslop, and you know he tells the story how he started out in his garage in 1988 or wherever it was. And the reality is, that I was there in 1999. I think Chuck, you know, I don't want to get his age, but when I do the math, he was a pretty young guy. But he also didn't have kids, or he was just starting a family. And I, and then I think about, especially in my ISO days, running the ISO was the first day. There was a lot of young guys who they weren't entrenched with family yet. But they had a vision and a passion and want to run their own business. And I've seen so many of those people do phenomenally well, phenomenally well. And I think, and I always think, well, part of it is because they had the vision, but they also didn't have any kind of obligations, deep obligations, family obligations that would prevent them from taking that risk. So I would, I would say, take the risk in this industry. Go shoot for the moon. You know, while you're in a situation that you can do that. You know, and as far as just trying to grow your career, rejoice in the success of others. You know, if you're, you really want to grow and be a leader in the industry, you have to be the kind of person who I think someone else's success, you get more out of someone else's success, success than your own is important. I would tell people, and this is probably a life lesson more so than it is a payments lesson, but it certainly holds true in business and in payments too. But I'm a huge fan of John Wooden and a lot of the, you know, the things that John Wooden says. And probably my favorite quote that John Wooden says that's so applicable in life is control what you can control and don't let that which you cannot control, control you. And I've seen that a million times where people get spun around the axle around things that ultimately they really can't control. And the calories that they burn would have been so much better diverted towards something that they could have impacted versus wasting all the time on the thing that they could not control. So I guess be daring, focus on that, which you, you, know, you, you can truly impact versus that which you can't impact and rejoice in success of them. No, that's a great answer. Is there anything else that you'd like to share, whether about your company, your career, more advice, uh, anything else you'd like to share before we wrap up? Uh, it's just a great industry. You know, all I, I can tell you, again, from a guy who started out as a salesperson, you know, managing 20 Wachovia banks and uh, really in Raleigh, Chapel Hill, Durham area in 1995 to today is the opportunity. And it's not just me. Obviously, for me, I've had five kids through that career and it's afforded me so many amazing opportunities. But I've seen it with all kinds of other folks in this industry. It's that whole recurring revenue aspect of the industry. This industry changes daily, weekly, monthly. I'm afraid to take a week off from work because I, I feel like when I come back, the industry's passed me by. And that's how dynamic this industry is. But it's also not, it's not weathered. I think there, again, there's, there's so much opportunity out there today. If you, you know, and if somebody was going to come into the industry, I guess, one piece, I guess, Greg, I would say is if someone was new or they were coming into this industry, I used to do trainings for card service agents back in 2000. I told them the same thing is if you try to understand everything about this industry, you'll probably fail. But if you just focus on something you care about and turn that into your business and just become the best at that, and then you can layer in other things. So if you love the restaurant industry, understand everything about the restaurant industry and how payments can impact it. 
and just go sell restaurants. If you love charities, understanding about charities, go find solutions for that and be great at it. Trying to be great at everything in the payments industry will drive you crazy. Trying to be great at something is highly rewarding. And again, there's just so much opportunity. I've seen these you know, people grow and their families grow. So phenomenal industry to be in. I'm blessed to have gotten into it when I left Boston in 1995 to get into it. And uh, I'll probably die in the payments industry. <laughs> well, Brian, I really appreciate your time today. And, and thank you for being on the show. I know, you know, your time is very valuable. So I really appreciate you taking some time out to be with us today. I appreciate it, Greg. Appreciate what you're doing, you know, trying to get out there and evangelize our industry. And if I can help you out at all, you know how to get a hold of me. Great. I appreciate that. And to all you people out there listening, I thank you for your time as well. And until the next story. Thank you for joining us this week on the Leaders in Payments podcast. Make sure you visit our website at leadersinpayments.com, where you can subscribe to the show and where you'll find our show notes. If you enjoyed listening, please share on your social channels as well. 